Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Who has never heard of serial killers? Who has never leafed through a book of Stefan Bourgoin or watched at least one episode of a TV series based on the real-life stories of these remorseless criminals? Today, there are very few people who can answer no to all of these questions. In fact, these days, those who commit multiple homicides or more specifically serial killers arouse as much mystery as terrorists. These meticulous and intelligent assassins are ever-present in our society and for the most part have become real celebrities in America. However, contrary to popular belief, mass murderers do not exist solely in the United States. They can be found just about everywhere in the world, particularly in Great Britain. These habitual killers have ultimately haunted our imagination and taken over the collective consciousness. They bear witness to the darkest side of the human soul. These figures, both fascinating and repulsive, are the most sinister of their times. Paradoxically, a serial killer has the unique ability to hide in the guise of someone who is, in all respects, a good person. Polite, respectful, and impeccably dressed and often slip by unnoticed, concealing themselves through anonymity. As a predator, they know how to approach their prey by gaining their confidence, just like British serial killer and necrophiliac Dennis Nielsen, who concealed his twisted mind beneath the carefully constructed veneer of normality, cheerfulness, and benevolence. It was only a gruesome discovery in the building's sewer system that put an end to his five-year-long murder spree. On the evening of February 8, 1983, the sky grew increasingly dark. The wind was frigid, and snow had covered the streets in a blanket of white. Michael Catran, a 29-year-old plumber, was sent by his employer to 23 Cranley Gardens in Moswell Hill, north of London. Jim Alcock, who lived on the ground floor of a small two-story building, complained of something blocking the sewage drain pipes. For five days, the flow had been completely blocked. An employee from the cleaning company, Dinah Rod, was sent to the premises and he began checking the sewage facility in the complainant's apartment. Immediately, the employee realized that the problem was coming from outside. Consequently, Mike exited the residence. With Jim's help, he immediately removed a sheet that opened onto a shaft of about four meters deep, which was directly connected to the building's pipes. While his friends shined a flashlight on the opening, he carefully climbed down the metal ladder. Nothing could have prepared the young man for what he was about to discover. 
below, there was an enormous, gelatinous mass made up of strange, grayish chunks that emitted a disgusting odor. It appeared to be a large amount of rotten meat. However, some of the pieces were the size of a fist and seemed too big to belong to an animal. They could only belong to a human. He was almost certain of it. Flabbergasted, he decided not to say anything to his gentleman who was standing about him, waiting for his verdict. He had to be discreet until he notified his superiors. Who knew? Maybe he was the one who caused this disaster. As he tried his best to keep his cool, he climbed back up and told Jim that he had to come back in light of the day in order to see it more clearly. Immediately, he ran to call his boss, Gary Wheeler, and explained to him that the substance clogging the pipes seemed to be parts of a corpse that had been cut up and decomposed. But who could ever trust such an outlandish claim? It had to be seen in order to be believed. The next day, Catran returned to the site, this time joined by Wheeler. Mike immediately noticed that the color had been moved. The previous evening, he had put it back facing the opposite direction. As they lifted the sheet, the two workers noticed that the drain had been mysteriously cleared and that the debris had disappeared, but whoever emptied the trenches hadn't cleaned it very well. There were little sticky bits on the edges and some tiny bones that still remained at the bottom of the pit. Furthermore, since the water had not yet been turned back on, the site still presented a health hazard. Whoever tried to hide their crime hadn't done a very good job. Using a plunger, Mike eventually removed the rest of the remains and cleared the pipes while still keeping the waste. Precisely at that moment, a young barmaid by the name Fiona Bridge came rushing towards them. She was Jim Alcock's girlfriend. She was so distraught that she came out in her nightgown. With a trembling voice, she told the two plumbers that on the previous evening, she heard footsteps in the stairwell and she had the impression that someone was heading to the manhole tower. No one lived in the first floor, yet just about the attic, a floor that included two rooms, lived someone named Des. He was a Scottish man in his 30s, a loner who was also somewhat distant. He worked as an administrator in an employment agency in Kentish Town area. He lived in the attic with a black and white mongrel dog who answered to the name of Pleep. He almost never spoke to any of the other tenants. It seemed, therefore, that he must have been the one who unsuccessfully tried to conceal the evidence of his heinous crime. Upon reaching that conclusion, Michael decided to notify the local authorities. The Hornsey Metropolitan Police arrived at the scene. Chief Inspector Peter Jay, who was on duty that day, collected the remains and immediately brought them to the morgue and turned them over to Dr. David Bowen. The forensic professor confirmed for at first glance that these remains did indeed contain human flesh from different body parts. For example, the small bones were from a hand. Part of the relatively fresh tissue came from the neck area. What was interesting was that it bore a ligature mark. This mark made it possible to determine the murderer's modus operandi. Furthermore, all of the fragments came from a male. In addition, the piece were in different stages of decomposition, so it was quite likely that there was more than one body. Apparently, the police were dealing with the habitual killer who killed by strangulation and one who targeted men. He had to be arrested as soon as possible. For his part, Mike Catran, who stayed around to help unravel the sordid story, thought that the police didn't believe him. At least that was the impression he had been given. If not then, why did they devote so much time to closing the perimeter and searching the crime scene? 
He was disappointed, but still was determined to bring the truth into light of day. So he decided to go to the press. The British tabloid, The Daily Mirror, known for its flashy headlines and for its fondness for scandals and other unusual news items, immediately agreed to listen to him. If what he was saying was true, then it would be a scoop that was too good to miss. Right away, the tabloid sent a team to the scene and the plumber described his incredible tale for the reporters in an exclusive interview which aroused intense national media interest. This is what he had to say. I can tell you that it was full, so the blockage was between the pipes coming from the building and the manhole cover. There was a terrible odor when I opened the trench. I went about 12 feet to the bottom and when I got there, I couldn't believe my eyes. I pulled out big chunks the size of my fist and the other bits of flesh that seemed to have been cut off from someone's arm. He added, I went back down again with the plunger. Once I pushed it out to the bottom of the pipe, everything burst forth. Naturally, he was asked how he could be so sure that this was human tissue. This was Cataran's reply. The skin was so white and almost hairless. Besides, there was a lot of it. At one point, I wondered if they were limbs from an animal. After checking, I realized that it wasn't from a dog. There was no coat, and it most certainly wasn't from a chicken. They were covered in bruises, so I concluded that they must have been from a corpse. Upon returning to Muswell Hill, Inspector Jay, along with Inspector McCusker and another police officer by the name of Butler, all waited outside the house for Nielsen to come home. That morning, he left for work at around 8.30 a.m. after he had taken bleep out for a walk. According to neighbors, he usually comes home around 5.30 in the afternoon. Before this terrible tragedy, this suburb in the Herringy district, just north of the cosmopolitan city where the middle class lived, had an almost unbelievable tranquility. The three police officers knew the area well enough to be able to make such a judgment. There had never been any event that might disturb its peaceful routine. Furthermore, the sound of a police or an ambulance siren was almost never heard. The residents led very simple lives. Every morning, they climbed into their cars, went to work in downtown London, and quietly returned home in the evenings to be with their family. They liked gin and tonic and wine, and they spent their weekends gardening. In fact, there was a lot of green space in Moswell Hill. That's why there were so many streets called Cardens rather than roads including an alley called Cranley. Despite the peaceful atmosphere, the chief inspector and his colleagues had trouble remaining patient. At around 5 o'clock, they headed for the building's lobby to try to catch the suspect in case he tried to flee. In the interim, Jay tried to imagine the kind of man that might step out through the door, but he would not have to wait a long time to find out. Despite the slight feeling of fear that overtook him, he had to be prepared for whatever confrontation might occur with the sociopath. Shortly thereafter, the detectives found themselves face to face with their suspect. He was a slender man with a slightly hunched back and tense shoulders. He had thick brown hair with a huge cowlick that covered his forehead, thin lips that curled downwards and steel-framed glasses that masked his cold gaze. With his dark suit and his light blue shirt, he looked very much like the average man. Despite what he had done, Dennis Nielsen seemed quite normal. Consequently, Detective Jay got right to the point. He immediately told a young man that he was there to discuss the plumbing connected to his apartment. Immediately, Nielsen retorted, Since when are the police interested in plumbing? Since the plumbing became blocked by human remains. Jay replied looking at him straight in the eye. Oh, that's unfortunate. 
Stop screwing around and show us where the rest of the bodies are, the chief inspector ordered dryly. In two plastic bags in the closet, I'll show you. Immediately, Nielsen climbed up the steps to the attic, followed by the police officers, and opened the door to his apartment. Once they were inside, the officers were struck by such a nauseating odor, so much that they had trouble breathing. The place reeked of rancid butter. Undoubtedly, it was a smell of death. You'll find something in the kitchen, too, added the killer as he held the key to the closet with disconcerting tranquility. Then he said, And don't forget to look at the tea chest. Meeting a cooperative and confident criminal was not something that happened every other day, even when working in law enforcement. As a result, the police preferred not to look inside the cabinets in question. Instead, they merely looked around the rooms of the house, around that the suspect indicated, without touching anything. Inspector J then addressed Nielsen, saying, Sir, do you have anything else that you'd like to tell us? It's a long story and it goes back a long way, the young man continued. I'll tell you everything. I need to get it out of my chest, but not here, at the police station. At that point, the only thing that there was left to do was to arrest a disturbed individual, and then during the course of investigation, everything was revealed. Dennis Andrew Nielsen, you are under arrest on suspicion of murder. You have the right to remain silent. If you give up that right, everything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney who can be present during the interrogation. After putting him in handcuffs and placing him in the police car, Officer McCusker finally asked him the question that had been troubling him. Was this just one corpse or two? There have been about 15, 16 since 1978, clarified Nielsen. His response was so unexpected that everyone remained stunned. During all their years of service, Chief Inspector Jay and his colleagues had never seen a suspect who was so cold and detached as this one. His frankness was very alarming and it sent chills down one's spine. Once they had arrived at the police station, Jay was very direct. Just to clarify, you're saying that since 1978, you have killed 16 people? Yes, replied Nielsen in a terrifyingly calm voice and demeanor. Three in Cranley Gardens and 12 or 13 at my former residence at 195 Melrose Avenue in Cricklewood. Give me their names, demanded the inspector. Most of them I don't recall, I'm sorry. Yet he really did want to help the police to gather all the information necessary to charge them for his crimes. To his great dismay, his memories had failed him. He had difficulty remembering his fatal past, but he was sure that he had strangled, drowned, preserved and then dismembered more than 15 victims. He also admitted to having tried to kill seven other people, although he could only name four of them. Andrew Ho, Douglas Stewart, Paul Nobbs, and Carl Strotter. They had either escaped or on one occasion been on the brink of death and then revived and allowed to leave his home. When he was given the option of having an attorney present, Nielsen accepted the offer of legal counsel. Consequently, he was appointed an attorney named Ronald Moss who for his part agreed to provide his defense. Nevertheless, Nielsen stated that he was aware of the seriousness of his actions. He justified them by saying, I feel morally culpable. There is no disorder that could absolve, justify, or excuse my actions. So, I accept the full responsibility of my previous deeds because they are what determines one's measure as a man, to gravely sin and to repent for one's crimes. The real punishment has always been knowing about the transgressions one has made and there is consequences for others. 
The next morning, the murderer of Muswell Hill appeared before the judges at Highgate and was sent back into custody for three days, during which he was interrogated 16 times. The interrogations during the investigation totaled more than 30 long hours, where the kindly killer happily discussed his delusions in very exhaustive detail. He spoke obsessively about his crimes, his post-mortem rituals, and his dismemberment technique. There was one appalling tale in particular that made the officer shudder. Nielsen stated that in April 1982, he had strangled a drag queen three times in a row, but although they were frail, they still clung to life. At first, the inspectors were somewhat skeptical of this story of attempted murder. If such an attack had occurred, then why hadn't the victim reported it to the police? However, Dennis gave them the victim's name. It was Carl Strotter. Quickly, the police tracked him down. When he was questioned about what had happened two years earlier, when he met Des in a pub in Camden Town, Strotter outlined all the events in the exact same way as his kidnapper did. He had never spoken of it to anyone else before that day. A few years later, Carl committed suicide as he was unable to live with the burden of everyone talking about it. During an interview held on February 10, Nielsen confessed that at Cranley Gardens, there were other human remains in the tea chest of his living room and still more in an overturned drawer of his bathroom. The dismembered body parts were from three men killed by strangulation. He was unable to name one of the victims. He knew another only by the name of John, the guardsman, which meant messenger, and a third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. Since he was homosexual, he targeted boys or young men who were in good shape. Most of them were tourists, runaways, or homeless people that Dennis met by chance in the street, in the bars or pubs. Furthermore, that was the reason why most of them had not been reported missing. Des approached them politely and enticed them to come home with them by offering them a warm bed in which to spend the night, a hot meal, good music, or even the chance to drink as much alcohol as they wanted. Upon getting them home, he got them so drunk that they either passed out or fell asleep, and then he strangled them, usually with a necktie. Once the victim had been killed, he bathed them, shaved all their hair from their chest and applied makeup on all of their visible imperfections in order to make them confirm to his ideal. Then he carried them on his shoulders to stretch them out on the bed or to sit them on the sofa. From that point on, he had a new lover who would never try to leave him. He felt that he had control over them. Furthermore, Nielsen was not the least bit uncontrollable about sharing his apartment with corpses. He spent hours and hours looking at them and never grew tired. He thought that they were angelic, handsome, and most importantly quiet. He enjoyed talking to them, touching them, and lying close to them. The mere sight of them made him start fantasizing. However, he did admit to occasionally having intercural sex with them, but he emphasized to the investigators that he never actually penetrated them. He explained that they were too beautiful and perfect for pathetic ritual of ordinary sex. In addition to being a serial killer, this benevolent monster was a necrophiliac. The very evening, Commissioner Chambers, Chief Inspector Jay, and Professor Bowen all went to Nielsen's apartment in Moswell Hill. The kitchen was covered in human fat. Two bodies had been cut up in the bathtub under which the lower extremity of a corpse was found. In a corner of the living room, there was a tea chest that contained limbs and a skull covered in newspaper and an old curtain. After opening the closet, they found the two large black garbage bags that Nielsen had mentioned upon his arrest. The medical examiner found four little bags in one of them. 
The first one contained the left part of a breast, in the second was the right part of an arm, and in the third there was a torso without head or limbs. The fourth little bag included various other human fragments. In the second black bag, Bowen discovered two heads and another torso with arms but no hands. One of the two heads was without flesh after having been boiled. The other was not quite as damaged and still had some hair left behind its neck. However, the rest of the hair and the lips were missing. It had been recently scaled. It could only have been from his last victim. The forensic scientists were able to put together the macabre puzzle of Stephen Sinclair's body in order to indict the necktie strangler. When Nielsen was asked why he cooked the heads, he stated that he often boiled them in a big pot on his stove until the contents had completely evaporated. That was the best way to remove the flesh and to easily separate the bones of the skull. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As for the torsos and limbs from the three victims killed at his current residence, he dismembered them about a week after their murder before wrapping them in plastic bags and storing them in the three locations mentioned earlier. What was left was such as internal organs and small bones were flushed down the toilet. This habit, which led to his arrest, was the only way that he could think of to get rid of the internal organs and soft tissues from the victims. The charges, which had to be filed within 48 hours following an arrest, depended solely on Nielsen's willingness to plead guilty to all his crimes. Therefore, he was only charged with the murder of Sinclair who had been identified by his fingerprints. With a lack of any tangible evidence, the investigation came to a standstill. It could be difficult to convince a jury that this man was a habitual killer without any foundation. Even with the detailed confession, the investigators were required to prove that he had committed all the prosecutable acts voluntarily. They had to gather as much irrefutable evidence as possible in order to put this cold-blooded monster in prison once and for all. On February 11, Nielsen, accompanied by Jay and Chambers, went to Melrose Avenue, where he led them to a spot in the garden where some human remains were located. 
he had lived at this ground floor residence from 1976 to 1981 and declared that he had killed 12 or 13 men here. A specialized police team then conducted an exhaustive search in hopes of finding any clues that might lead them to identify new victims. They unearthed a lot of ash from human bodies and enough bones to allow forensic scientists to determine that there were at least eight bodies. At his former address, northwest of London, in a more spacious and practical ground floor apartment, the Scottish serial killer confessed that he had kept the corpses as long as decomposition would allow him. If one or even several of them did not appear to be rotting, he'd sometimes store them under the floorboards and took them out whenever he wanted. Once again, he applied makeup to enhance the appearance of his deceased companions and to hide any blemishes. He might keep three or four at a time and dissect those that were not fresh. These were wrapped in plastic bags that he could put back under the floorboards. After a few weeks or maybe even a month of being underground, they began to noticeably decompose and so he would then dissect them. In two instances, he placed the pieces in some luggage that had been left on the property by a previous tenant and eventually buried them in a back garden to which he had access. Most of the remains were rolled up into a thick carpet and thrown into a bonfire. By adding some car tires to the blaze, he was able to mask the smell of burning flesh. Once the flames had been extinguished, he searched through the ashes with a rake for any recognizable remains and smashed up whatever he was able to find. As for the internal organs, he gathered them together in little plastic bags, which he usually tossed behind a fence so that they would be eaten by animals. Between 1987 and 1983, Nielsen killed 15 people including Stephen Dean Holmes, Kenneth McIndon, Martin Duffy, William Sutherland, Malcolm Barlow, John Howlett, Archibald Graham Allen, Stephen Sinclair, a young laborer, a hippie, and two male prostitutes. The kind killer was unable to identify the rest of his victims. To him, they did not represent permanent lovers, but objects used to satisfy his own delusions and desires, as well as characters in his fantasy world. Nielsen was then transferred to Her Majesty's prison in Brixton to be placed in custody until his trial. He claimed that he didn't know why he killed these poor young men and simply stated that, I hope that you could tell me. He was insistent, however, that the decision to kill was only made just a few moments before the act. But when an officer accused him of being a predator with malicious intent, he answered confidently. First and foremost, I was looking for company and I always hoped that things would turn out well. So why did he have any remorse? Nielsen answered the question by claiming that I wish that I had been able to stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrills or pleasure in my life. He also emphasized that he took no pleasure in the act of killing, but that he adored the beauty and the art of death. Hedonistic killers tend to use murder as a way of seeking pleasure. Furthermore, they do not experience any remorse in killing people in order to achieve a feeling of well-being. These impulses and desires are far from being normal. But how did this quite young civil servant come to live such a monstrous life with utmost secrecy? And what could drive someone to indulge in such repulsive fantasies? The answer lies in his complex past, which began on the rugged coastline of the North Sea. Dennis Andrew Nielsen was born on November 23, 1945, in Fraserburg. It was a coastal town northeast of Scotland in the Aberdeenshire region, which was home to the largest seafood fishing port in Europe. Dennis was the second of three children 
born of a Scottish woman named Elizabeth White and a Norwegian soldier called Olav Magnus Mokshin, who took on the last name of Nielsen. In 1940, following the German occupation of Norway during the Second World War, he traveled to Scotland with the three Norwegian forces. After a brief courtship, he married Elizabeth in May 1942, and the young newlyweds lived with White's parents. Des parents' marriage was a complete disaster. His mother, a cold and stern woman, constantly complained that her husband was an irresponsible man who was only concerned about his military duties and made no effort to spend time with his family or even to find them a new home. As for Olav Nielsen, he was an alcoholic who didn't take married life seriously. In addition, the couple's three children, Olav Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived during their father's brief visits home. It was clear that they didn't get along very well, but it was only after the birth of their third child that the young woman came to the conclusion that she had rushed into marriage and the couple divorced in 1948 when Dennis was only four years old. Elizabeth's parents, Andrew White and Lily Dutty, who had never approved of their daughter's choice of a husband, nevertheless still supported her after her divorce and helped to take care of their grandchildren. It was a very religious household. Their grandparents, who were both affectionate and strict, expressly forbid swearing, insulting, showing a lack of respect to others, and even asking questions about sex. Out of the grandparents' care, the children lived their childhood in an atmosphere of religious discipline and puritanism. As a result, the youngest of the Nielsen boys was quite withdrawn. He was absorbed in his own world, where only his grandfather was allowed to enter. He had been a sailor. He knew how to enchant the young boy with tales of the sea. Additionally, he was the only person towards whom the child had any real affection or admiration. When Andrew came back from fishing, the whole family knew that Dennis was anxious to see him again. In 1951, the health of the old sailor was declining. He became weaker and weaker, but continued to work. On October 31 of the same year, Andrew died of a heart attack at the age of 62, while he was fishing in the North Sea. His body was taken ashore and sent back to the family home. Before the burial, White went to Dennis and offered to take him to see his grandfather. Immediately, he was brought to the room where the old man's body lay in an open coffin. Anticipating the question, his mother told him that his grandfather was sleeping and that he was now in a better place. At the age of six, the little boy was unable to comprehend this devastating scene. From that moment on, images of love and death became intertwined for him. The unexpected death of the only person who loved him and coupled with the traumatic side of his corpse later drove him to behavioral psychopathology. To that end, one day he announced that all his fantasies were directly linked to his grandfather. In his own words, he stated that, by imagining myself handling their passive bodies, meaning their corpses, I imagined myself as my grandfather holding me as a passive male child, giving me pleasure and pain at the same time in a series of traumatic electric shocks which left an impression on me and which I later unconsciously needed to recreate. In the years following his grandfather's death, Nielsen became quieter and more introverted, especially when his mother remarried. She wed a construction worker named Andrew Scott, with whom she had four other children. Although Dennis initially resented his stepfather, whom he considered an unfair disciplinarian, he slowly reluctantly came to respect him. In early puberty, Nielsen realized that he was not heterosexual. For some reason, he found that he had a special attention towards men. 
When someone of the same sex touched him, it aroused uncontrollable feelings in him. Confused yet compelled, he knew that he couldn't talk to any of his relatives about it. In addition, he was unsure whether he was gay or bisexual since all of the boys that he was attracted to seemed to strangely resemble his sister. To test out his prelections, Nielsen fondled his sister and his brother one night while they were sleeping, but his brother woke up and caught him in the act. After that event, O.J. began to suspect that his brother was a homosexual and even said so in public and frequently teased his brother and called him a chicken. Although Nielsen's scholastic career wasn't exactly brilliant, but overall his grades were higher than average. He was gifted in history and art, but he had no interest in sports. In 1961, he completed his studies and briefly worked in a canary. The people there discovered many things about him, things that caused him shame in a predominantly conservative company. He was constantly bullied because of his sexual orientation. He appreciated his mother's efforts to look after his needs, but he wanted to spread his wings and fly far away from the family nest where no one would know him. After working at the factory for three weeks, Nielsen informed his mother that he planned to train as a chef in the British Army. Thus, at the age of 14, the young boy joined the cadet force. While he was in the service at Aldershot, Nielsen's latent feelings began to reemerge. The soldiers' athletic bodies and their aggressive impulses enormously excited him. Nevertheless, he tried very hard to hide his sexual orientation from his colleagues. In 1964, Nielsen passed his first catering exam and was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Riflemen in Osterburg, where he served as a soldier. Having becoming a cook, he then worked as a butcher in the military catering corps where he learned all the dismembering techniques that served him so well during his five-year killing spree. During his military service in Germany, he began to drink more and more, which was his way of overcoming shyness and being more social. The day after a night of drinking, Nielsen awoke and found himself on the floor in a young German man's apartment. Although there had not been any sexual relations between the two men, the potential aroused his sexual fantasies. In fact, he was disappointed that his friend hadn't abused him while he was unconscious, but the scene did inspire some new disturbing ideas within him. They involved having a sexual partner, always a young man who was completely passive or vice versa. As a result, Dennis tried several times to get himself sexually assaulted. To achieve this, he drank too much with his colleagues. Nielsen pretended to be drunk in the hopes that one of them would try to abuse his supposedly unconscious body. In 1967, Nielsen was sent to Aden in South Yemen, where he once again worked as a cook in the prison at Al-Mansura. While he was there, his sexual psychosis gradually became more pronounced with a side of corpses. Certainly, this was the period when his necrophilia developed. His fascination for dead bodies and for a 19th century oil painting called The Raft of Medusa confirmed those feelings for him. The painting depicted an old man holding the naked, limp dead body of a young man while he sat beside the dismembered corpse of another young man. In one of Nielsen's most vividly described fantasies, a slim and seductive young soldier who had recently been killed in combat was being dominated by a faceless, filthy old man with gray hair. The old man washed the body before having sexual relations with a quartered cadaver. This represented the ultimate fantasy for him and one which he absolutely wanted to try. After 11 years of service, Dennis Nielsen finished his military career and returned to his family's home. 
Between October and December 1972, Nielsen lived with his family. On more than one occasion during those three months, his mother expressed her concern over his lack of female companion and her desire to see him get married and start a family. On one occasion, Nielsen joined his older brother Olaf Jr. and his sister-in-law to watch a documentary on homosexual men. Everyone viewed the film with derision, except Nielsen, who ardently defended the rights of homosexuals. A fight then broke out after which Olaf Jr. told their mother that Dennis was gay. Speaking of his family, the necktie strangler had said, I was never the black sheep of the family. I was the pink sheep. I was someone who went far beyond their faculties of comprehension or empathy. I could imagine my mother saying, if only he was a normal murderer, we could accept that. But to be a sodomite and an unforgivable sexual pervert was too much. That's the kind of person you need to cut ties with and never speak about again. He eventually decided to join the Metropolitan Police and moved to London in December 1972. For him, this was the best way to escape his rural origins and his secrets that had now been exposed. In April 1973, Nielsen was assigned to Wilston Green as a junior officer. During the summer and fall of 1973, the lonely young man started going to gay bars and having casual sex. In December of that same year, Nielsen resigned from the police force. Between December 1973 and May 1974, Nielsen had a job as a security guard but was employed only intermittently. Thus, he resolved to find himself another job that was more stable and secure. In May 1974, he had the chance to join an employment agency. Initially, he was assigned to the job center on Denmark Street as a civil servant. Then in 1979, he was named interim executive director and was officially promoted to the position in June 1982. Consequently, he was transferred to the agency in Kentish Town, where he worked up until his arrest. In November 1975, Nielsen met a 20-year-old man named David Galakchan in front of a London pub. He was being threatened by two other men. Destin intervened and brought him to his flat at 80 Tickmouth Road in the Cricklewood district. The two men spent the night drinking and talking. Nielsen learned that Galakchan had recently moved to London and he was gay, without a job and living in his hostel. It seemed then that he had found the perfect companion who would easily submit to him and his desires. The next morning, following the kind civil servant's offer, the two men decided to live together. Several days later, the couple moved into the ground floor apartment of 195 Melrose Avenue. For the first year of their relationship, Nielsen thought that he had found true love with collection. However, the relationship between the two men started to show signs of tension. They slept in separate beds and both of them occasionally brought home casual sex partners. Nielsen had never been violent towards his boyfriend, but he did sometimes engage in verbal abuse. In early 1976, the couple began fighting with increasing frequency and after a violent quarrel in May 1977, Dennis asked David to move out of the apartment. This had been the only long-term relationship that the murderer of the Muswell Hill had ever known. After that, he formed brief relationships with several other young men over the next 18 months, but none of them lasted more than a few weeks, and none of them ever expressed a desire to live with him permanently. In late 1978, he was living a lonely existence. All throughout 1978, he spent a lot of time and effort at work and spent most of his evenings drinking alcohol and listening to music. Each time that a young man or a boy accepted his invitation, he wanted to hold on to him. 
wanted him to stay, but it was impossible. That was when he decided to take the young man's life. Sometimes the Scottish serial killer showed mercy. On eight different occasions, he freed his prey from his clutches. For five years, he acted with impunity until his pipe started splitting out bits of flesh and bones, which alerted the building's co-owner of his crimes. On October 24, 1983, the kindly killer stood before Judge Croom Johnson at Old Bailey. He pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. On one hand, the attorney for the prosecution, Alan Green, explained that Nielsen was of sound mind, that he was in complete control of his actions, and he killed his victims with premeditation. On the other hand, the lawyer for the defense, Ivan Lawrence, asserted that Nielsen suffered from diminished capacity, which made him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and therefore should only be found guilty of involuntary homicide. On November 4, 1983, the jury rendered a majority verdict of guilty on six counts of murder and one count of two attempted murders with the unanimous guilty verdict with respect to the attempted murder of Paul Nobbs. Judge Croom Johnson sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he served a minimum of 25 years in jail. The ruthless killer was found guilty of the murders of Kenneth Ockenden, Martin Duffy, William Sutherland, Malcolm Barlow, John Howlett, and Stephen Sinclair. He was also charged with the attempted murder of Douglas Stewart and Paul Noobs. As for the other victims, he was not tried for the attempted murder of Carl's daughter or for the murder of Graham Allen due to the lack of evidence. It was not until 2006 that DNA tests made it possible to identify Dennis Nielsen's first victim as being Stephen Dean Holmes. The innocent young man that he had killed were guilty of nothing more than having accepted his hospitality, after which he strangled them without a second thought. On May 12, 2018, the murderer of Muswell Hill died in prison. An autopsy revealed that the immediate cause of death was a pulmonary embolism and a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. His body was later cremated in June 2018 in the absence of his family. The necktie strangler has inspired several authors, including biographer Brian Masters, in whom the criminal had confided. Masters had decided to write a bad, disordered tale and try to understand how and why someone could commit these horrific acts. Accordingly, his book, entitled Killing for Company, The Case of Dennis Nielsen, tried to prove answers to these intriguing questions that the public had often wondered about. A three-episode miniseries based on his book was released in 2020 and retraced the serial killer's criminal history, but the series deliberately omitted the horrific elements and did not show the killer at work. In January 2021, one of Nielsen's former confidants, named Mark Austin, revealed that an edited version of the serial killer's book entitled The Story of a Drowning Boy was to have been posthumously published by Red Door Press. The autobiography based on 6,000 pages of typed notes written by the serial killer during his incarceration examined his life and his crimes and was edited by Austin, who had corresponded with Nielsen in the years prior to his death. This declaration sparked indignation from the families of the victims and from the general public. Consequently, the barbaric murderer's secrets were banned from the publication out of respect for the victim's memory. We're at the end of our show for today. So feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.